You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message by Pastor Jeremy McCauley, titled Arc Engineering, from the series Foundations. For more information, visit creekside.org. Good morning. For those of you who it's your first time here, I do want to assure you I do not normally wear a tie. But it's Christmas, and when you got a great Christmas tie, and this is a 747 with Santa Claus and his reindeer wrapped around the back, right? You got to wear the Christmas tie. So it won't happen very often, don't worry. But it makes it fun to wear a tie. This morning, we're going to be talking about some of the impossible things God leads us through. And one of the things that as we we go through this struggle, remember last week was just, you know, God leading us through and this generations and and preserving the one righteous line. And and sometimes we sit there and go, but none of these things seem possible. And as we come to this morning, that's really what we're going to struggle with is is dealing with the impossible. And, And I don't know about you, but I have numerous examples in my life where God has led me through an impossible situation. It just so happens that most of them involve housing, which I don't know how many of you enjoy the fun of housing, but it seems like something that always comes back, and it could be the houses that I choose. That We'll get into that a little bit more. But um, the, the one that came to mind and the one that, that is, is fun to remember is the first house that Paula and I lived in after we got married. And, and we had chosen a place that was only a block off of Telegraph Avenue, four blocks from the Berkeley campus, which if any of you know the Berkeley area, that's just not where anybody really wants to live. Um, <laughs> but it had the one feature we really needed. We could afford it. <laughs> right? At that age, we were, I was still 19 very young. My child bride was only 20, but we figured out that this was a great place, and we said, okay, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to move in. This is all going to be wonderful. Within only a short amount of time, I don't remember, we were there like four, five, six months, and we started noticing bugs running around inside there. Now, I don't really like bugs a whole lot, especially not inside the house. You know, they're fine outside the house, but we would notice them like we'd fold back the sheets and there'd be bugs running across the bed. Yeah, fun. You'd go in in the morning to make yourself breakfast and you'd get down a pot and there'd be a bug running around on the inside of it. Plates were covered. By the end of the time, we were sleeping on a couch because it was the only thing we could make ourselves believe was clean could isolate it at least a little bit. Now, what we didn't know at the time as we were living through this situation, we, you know, we'd call up the, the rental agency and the agency would go, oh, we'll, we'll send somebody over to treat your apartment. And we're like, uh, you know, it's probably not just our apartment. This is a whole complex. You might want to take care of the whole building and, and do this. And they're like, oh, you know, the problem is the guy who lives below you is in an iron lung. And he really was. I didn't. So he's in there, we can't take him out. So we can only treat your apartment. Like, all right, well, I guess that's what we get to do. So they came in, they treated our apartment. There were times when we would stay elsewhere because the bug spray was just so prevalent in our apartment and it was so gross and the bugs were still running around inside there. Uh, My wife reminded me between services, you used to turn on the light before you went in in to the bathroom at night because you hoped that they would scurry away before you walked in. It was just horrible, and it seemed impossible, and we kept calling the rental agency, and they'd say, well, you signed a contract. That's just the way it is. It must be your apartment. You must be at fault for this, and we're sitting there 
a lot younger than we are now. We didn't realize that renters had rights or anything like that. And we're, we're thinking, we're stuck here. And we're stuck here forever. It seemed completely impossible. And like there was nothing we could do. And, and finally, Paula got, it, got into her head and said, I'm going to call the health department. Well, a very nice inspector walked into our house. He walked through the house for just a few minutes and walked out and looked at her and said, I have good news for you. You're out of your lease as of this moment. I'm like, well, you can't do that. We signed a lease. He goes, oh, no, I can do that. You're completely out of your lease. It is over as of right now. They can't make you live in a place like this. So we're like, oh, this is great, right? But what we didn't realize is that was the easy part. Finding another apartment in the middle of the school year is impossible as well. And so we scoured places. We were, of course, a little more picky this time. No more bugs was the slogan my wife would walk around with. And we came in and we finally went back to the place we had lived before next to Cal State Hayward. For those of you who don't remember, that's Cal State East Bay now. So we went to Cal State Hayward. There's this really nice apartment complex next to it. We went in. My wife is just in tears, crying. The manager's working with us. She's like, I'd love to help you. I'm so sorry for what you're going through, but we have nothing. There are no apartments available at all. Everything's booked. Everything's filled up. And we're just sitting there going, but there has to be something. And as we're talking to her, as she's going through this, all of a sudden she stops talking tilts her head like she's listening to something and goes, we have an empty apartment. It's a corporate, but it's empty right now. We'll move you in there right now. And in fact, not only that, but we'll give it to you for the rent that you would like to have on the smallest apartment that we have, but it's way bigger than that. And we'll just deal with it when the time comes and we have somebody who needs to move in. How's that sound? (laughs) We're like, yes. So we moved in that weekend. And the point that I keep coming back to as I, every time I think about it is God taking me through something that was completely impossible, that had no solution, no way to deal with it, and no way to get through it, and that he walked me through it every bit. Last week, we talked about the great stories and how many of the figures of ancient myths actually fit in and point us toward Jesus. They remind us of who he is and what he's done, and it's brings us back to the question of what do we expect from the data that we have? What do we expect to see? What we'd expect is we look at scientific and archaeological and historical and documented data that they would all fit together. To me, it makes, that's what I look for. How does this all make sense and how does it fit? We expect that to happen. And so as we look at things, we have to start questioning things where we see data on one side And yet we ignore that possibility on the other. For instance, what would you say if I told you that there are 258 cultures around the globe who have the exact same story in their history? Would you think it's probably reasonable to follow that? 258 cultures that are unrelated all believe something similar happened. It is actually true of the flood. 258 cultures, if you go, not just Hebrew cultures, the Hebrew culture is one of those. The Eskimos, a completely unrelated culture. The North American Indians, the Chinese. All around the globe, historically, we have people believing that a full 
global flood happened. 90% of the 258 cultures believed that it was global in extent. And here's the kicker. Six of them believed that one family escaped and the man's name was Noah. It's not something that we can just ignore. It's not something that we can look at and say, I think this is just impossible. You see, all the way through the first part of the Bible, what we've seen is God building the impossible, literally stacking up things that shouldn't be, we don't even see and we don't understand how he could do it. He started with an exceedingly good creation and the perfect couple, no bias against God. And when they chose to walk away, we saw God create an impossible way to care for them, even though they had failed. We saw the perfect parents with perfect genes. And when their kids wouldn't listen and still turned away from God, we saw God create a way to bring back their errant children, to talk to them, teach them, and bring them through everything. We saw the perfect family with a full knowledge of who God is, with the ability to ask their great-great-great-great-grandfather whether or not the story was true. And as they walk away yet again, God is about to do something that sounds impossible. He's about to create a flood. The flood is coming. And what we see is that cultures all around the globe believe it and understand it to be real and see the truth of what it is. We don't see it today, which, by the way, is what God promised would happen. And so a lot of people refuse to believe that it was possible in the past. But around the world, people believe and see and follow and know that this is a historical tale that we're going to read today. Could it be true? Could he even build it? Could he really fit all of culture and those animals on one boat? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And as we talk about the way that the ark is reasonable, buildable, defendable, and historical, one of the things that I come back to is I wonder if Noah, in the passage that we're reading, thought the exact same questions we do. God, how are you going to flood the whole world? Can I really take that many animals on a boat? How am I going to feed them? How am I going to deal with it? Isn't it going to be a little stuffy inside? The historical account we read today starts in Genesis chapter 6. So everybody grab your Bibles. Let's open them up. We're going to look at God's story of when he asks Noah to build something that seems completely impossible and what Noah does about it. I'm going to pick up in verse 5 of chapter 6. That's partway into where we were last week. Remember, we ended on, number, on verse 8 last week, but we'll kick off in verse 5, and it says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of man's heart, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, 
for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make middle, lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your word even in the face of things that seem impossible. We pray that you would show us through Noah just how to deal with such things and how you deal with them. Please bless us and watch over us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This isn't your kid's fairy tale. This isn't the little ark that's got the little bow and the giraffe's neck out the window at the top, right? This is an ark that's big enough to hold all of the creatures on the planet. And that's what we want to talk about today because that sounds crazy. It sounds just like we're asking Noah to build, I don't know, a planet. And what we want to do today is look at what does it take when God asks us to do the impossible. You see, what Noah shows us is that you can build an ark. Now, for those of us in this room, we're highly unlikely to get asked to build an ark because God said that he won't flood the world again. But he does ask us to do impossible things in his name. He has things that he wants us to go through to show who he is and to minister to the people around us. And we want to look at what those are and how we deal with that and see how Noah deals with that. The first thing we see is that Noah follows a plan. And the cool thing is, is God gives him a plan, and it, it's reasonably specific. Now, we would really like it if he included the engineering calculations, but he included all the things that Noah needed to know, and Noah wrote down the things that we had to know. God starts with the reason why this is coming, and I think that's why it's so important to start in chapter 6, verse 5, because it says, God saw how great the wickedness of the earth had come, and he was grieved that he'd made the earth. It hurt him to see how much people hurt each other. God doesn't like it any more than you or I do, and probably a lot less. God starts off with the fact that he is grieved, he is hurt, and because of that pain, he's come up with a way to do something, to wipe and press a restart button. He's going to wipe all men, birds and animals are going to be included in that because they're on the face of the earth, everything from the face of the earth, and he's going to do it by doing this miraculous thing of covering the entire planet to 20 feet deep with water. Now, for those of you who think that's completely impossible, if the earth was flat, the waters that are in the ocean right now would cover it to a mile deep. There's a lot of water on this planet. 
And God's going to have to do some catastrophic things to make that happen. But it's not something that's outside of the realm of what's possible. It's not outside of the realm of what this planet is capable of. Definitely not outside of the realm of what God is capable of. As the floods of heaven, floodgates of heaven open, the floodgates of the deep open and up, God is going to bring about water and flood the whole planet. Now, he brings this to a man, and a lot of times we want to talk about Noah, and even I said, Noah, they, it's not like they're building a lot of arcs those days, and Noah just goes over and says, hey, I'd like to you know, get the next one off the assembly line. But it's not that Noah was stupid. These were advanced people who understood things, and Noah had had 500 years to learn. Somehow, I don't think he spent his whole life, those 500 years, laying on the couch eating potato chips. Noah had had 500 years to gather information, to know some of what he was doing. He probably built his own house. We know that they were building cities already in that time. They were building metals, music, very advanced things that we like to think would take forever to come up with. God was bringing people up with a very advanced knowledge just because they had the ability. This is who he comes to, and this is the kind of man that starts us. Now, for size, size is probably the one most of us struggle with. The ark is not a little thing. 450 feet long is one and a half football fields, right? 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall, that's four or five stories. These dimensions basically give you 300,000 square feet of space per deck. That's a lot of space. That's, for those of us who don't know, because we don't usually walk around measuring every building we walk into, that's half the size of Memorial Stadium when you're sitting watching a Cal game with three decks that you can put things into. In historical context, it means that it was roughly this size that you see here compared to other boats that we normally see. Hopefully, the rudder is a little bit bigger than the Titanic, but the, also you can see that it's larger than most of the wood, wood vessels that we see but not incomparably larger. There's plenty of size. There's lots of room. And as we get on further to see what he's going to fill it with, the question of can we fill it with those things comes back. We'll see roughly a million square feet is quite a bit of room. That's not including stacking any cages. That's not including putting anything on top of anything else. That's only if we build it flat. The aspect ratio of the boat becomes something that's actually of particular significance. He's told 450 feet long by 75 feet wide. It turns out that that's the same proportions that you would see in any of the boats that you look at out on the bay. All those large cargo vessels have roughly the same dimensional aspect ratio, which is length to width. It puts it right in the middle of this neat little triangle that some wonderful engineer has developed for me so that I could show it to you guys. And what you do is you do, you do scientific studies that are easy. You get to build a whole bunch of models, and you build models of boats that are really, really long and models of boats that are really, really short, and you try and figure out what's going to happen. It turns out, like I said, 258 cultures around the globe believe in the ark. The Chinese story is, would be closer to the blue one, the, the maximum stability. There's actually is a cube. Cube is nice, any direction it goes the same, basically deals with, with all directions the same. The problem is it also flips over in water. There's not a whole lot of comfort for the people inside. Might get seasick on that. The uh, Muslim story is closer to the orange one up at the top. 
very, very long, has an aspect ratio of about 10 to 1. The problem with this is that if you hit a long, long boat along the side with waves, it actually breaks in half. The engineering stresses are too large. There's another corner where you have maximum strength by making it tall. But Noah's is nicely balanced. It gives a, a ratio where you get a comfortable ride. It's not going to flip over all the time. You're going to actually be able to weather waves and see things through no matter what comes at them. So that's the engineering side of it. There's also some practical things you want to build in. You see, in a giant globe of water, the only waves that you have to deal with, they're not crushing up against the waves, there's, or against the rocks. There's no tsunamis. But you do have the wind that blows across the waves. Most gen waves are actually generated by waves, and they go, basically, the, wave, the wind goes this way, and the wave is perpendicular to it. Well, you want to make sure that your boat, for any sort of comfort and to not be sick the whole time, points into those waves and goes along with the wind. And so easily what you do is you put up a cowling like you see here on the front, big flat, basically a flat wooden sail. And when the wind blows, it blows on the front of that and it pushes the, wind, the front of your boat towards where the wind wants it to go. If you put a rudder on the back like this, you can see that's a fixed rudder. Noah doesn't have to steer anywhere. It's not like he's up on top like Captain Jack steering it around. He had, a solid rudder would just allow it to anchor into the water so that the, the boat by itself would always point into the waves. That's kind of cool. Practically, this boat is made so that it always gives you the best ride you could have. And now you're thinking, okay, he's just making that up. He came up with this idea, right? Historically, if you look back through the generations of boat building, and people have been building boats for thousands of years, early boats on the eastern Mediterranean all have this cowling on the front of them. Now, the problem with that is most of those boats are sailboats or rowboats. And if you want to go somewhere in a sailboat, you need to direct it the place you want to go. And that cowling always pushes you the way the wind wants you to go. That's why sailboats have directable sails. But this sail would always point you in the wrong direction. Well, early shipbuilders had learned and taken what Noah had built and said, oh, well, we need this. It's part of the boat. Without asking, why was it there in the first place? It took them some generations to realize that if we cut that off, we can actually point our boat and steer it ourselves and not have to fight the wind. So historical data points us to the fact that this is something that would have been in existence and would have been being used. It's something that comes along. The other one that I'm sure most of us would really like to know is where the forced air heating was, right? <laughs> Mainly because we don't want to smell all those animals. Anybody wish for that in their house, in this one especially? Okay, now the first thing I got to tell you is you're all quite a bit too sensitive. It's only in the last so many generations that people have lived apart from their animals. We like to think that people belong in the house, animals belong in the barn, right? Back in the olden days, people lived alongside their animals, often with their animals living in the same living space with them for heat purposes, for care purposes, they weren't quite as, as clean as we like to be in Western civilization. So they lived alongside them. 
Now, the neat thing is, is there's a bunch of ways that you can actually make the wind move through a boat. And people do them all the time, and they still do them now. So if you've ever watched Indiana Jones, there's this scene where he's on the back of the freighter ship, and there's, he's, inside the, the, um, he's inside this big tube that has that weird bell shape on the front of it, and then it goes down into the th- end of the deck. Everybody know what I'm talking about? You see these on all kinds of ships. The reason is, is because when the wind blows on the deck, it sucks the air down into the ship and forces the air to move on the inside. So that's a simple way to make air move, right? Also, just the fact that we're all sitting here, we all generate heat. Does anybody notice that? It gets hot up here anyway. We all generate heat, and that heat makes the air move inside this room. Well, there were windows up at the top of the ark, so that could go out, and as long as they had a way to suck new air in, just the fact that they were sitting there would generate some of that air movement. Now, I don't know about you, but that's probably not enough for me. I would have liked more than that. And it turns out that shipbuilders will actually make tubes up the middle of their ship that are sealed to the water, but they come up just just like the boat's built, and they come up, and the water is actually inside them, and then they're open up at the top. And what happens is as the boat goes over the waves and moves around, there's water inside of that. It's called a moon pool. Creative name, right? And it actually, the water moves up and down based on where the ship is at. And when it does that, it pumps air in and out of the boat without any work, without any fans, without anything else. It's like 440 on the freeway, right? All you got to do is figure out a way to take all that energy and get it to give you air. So God's given Noah all sorts of practical ways to make this happen, a plan that he's following. The neat part about this plan is it includes a reason. And I love the fact that he tells him in verse 17, I am going to bring floodwaters. You see, Noah doesn't just coat the ark with pitch because it sounds, excuse me, sounds like something fun for him to do. God's not just coming up with a crazy idea for him. God says, water's coming. There's a reason for what I have for you. There's a way to do it. You need to make sure that you pay attention to the whole plan. Not only is there a use or a reason for it, but there's also a use that he's going to give him for this plan. And this is the one that we often have fun with. He says, you were to bring into the ark in verse 19, two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. That sounds like fun, right? How do you get hold of all those? What do you do with two of every kind of animal? God has a plan that this is actually building together to do something. Not only Noah and his family, but all the animals, all of creation will be saved through this. There's a, there's a, a design behind the design that he's building. It's not just a construction project. And how often is it that when we're going through the impossible things, God is saying, hey, there's something that I want you to get out of this, or there's something I want the people around you to see. So, of course, where we come to is there's too many animals, right? Of course, in our modern day, we've been told that we've counted up all the animals, and there's so many species, there's not enough room, there's no way this would possibly work because there's so many different variations of every kind of animal. We have to remember that Noah's not taught, not told to bring two of every kind of animal, or of every animal. He's told to bring two of every kind of animal. That means that he doesn't have to have every variation 
He just has to have the genetic background in order to form them. Well, just like the humans had perfect genomes at this point, so did the animals. So as we go back and as we start looking at things, that means two dogs are all you need to populate all of the dog kinds. He doesn't have to have two schnauzers, two, two rottweilers, two of every kind, he just, or two of every species we've come up with. He needs two of the dogs so that they can do that. Horses are another simple one. A giraffe is a horse, has the same genetic build as a horse. It's a variation of the same thing. So while you might need a couple of these different animals to get all their kind, you only need one or pair of each kind. Makes it a lot smaller, makes it a lot easier. And yes, I do believe there were dinosaurs on the ark. Maybe Noah was even using them. To this point, we don't see any reason why they would have disappeared. We do see why many of them would be buried in the flood, which would fit the geological evidence that we see on our planet today. But one of the things that's fun about this is, well, we all watch movies about the 24-foot-tall dinosaurs. We need to remember that most dinosaurs were only the size of a sheep. That's the average size of a dinosaur. We're not looking at a huge change in size. We're looking at something that if you brought in young ones or if you brought in just a pair of the larger ones, you're not taking over the entire place. As an aside, you wonder where they all went. Well, they play out in a lot of the mythology after the flood. And personally, I think if you're a hunter, this is the first thing you're going to try and get. Once they're given the ability to eat meat, there's a lot of meat right there. Plus, it kind of looks threatening, and you probably want it not to come after your family. So there's a lot of good reasons for that. All of these animals in one place coming off the ark would have then reached out and populated the earth in the ice age that followed. You see, we talk about the flood, and we forget about the geological consequences of what would have happened. As the waters receded and as the clouds disappeared, the global temperature would have gone down. And you're looking at an ice age that would have happened a few thousand years ago in the hundreds of years after the flood. Not one that I was taught would take 20 or 100,000 years, but one that still created the population ability for things to move around the entire planet and populate it the way that we see currently happening. These are all buildable things that flow out of the plan that God gives Noah. So not only does God give Noah a plan to accomplish this impossible task, but he also wants us to remember that he'll give us the plan and he'll get that it is a process we have to go through. I'm sure Noah heard this plan and said, um, God, that sounds awfully big. Can I just take a nap today? How about we skip that? How about you build the ark? And it's important to remember because one of the things we struggle with is that the animals, you know, how did Noah even get them all? Did he have to barter and trade? In verse 20, it tells us this. God says, two of every kind of bird, every animal that moves around, uh, two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. He'll actually tell us that again in chapter 7. God is the one who takes care of providing the payload and bringing it in. But this process is going to take a lot of time. It's going to be bigger than Noah probably wants to take on. 
We have to remember sometimes the impossible things God brings us give a, take a lot of time to do them. Noah actually has 120 years. I personally can't imagine working on something for 120 years. Sometimes the fact that I've been at the same job for 20 seems like an amazing fact. Noah has plenty of time to do the things that he's doing. He has time to spend designing, bringing materials together, figuring out what he has to do, figuring out the things that it'll take to make a large vehicle that's also watertight and capable of faring where he's going. And God's given him a lot of that detail. Now, just to be sure, this is not the same as evolution. Evolution started the idea of millions of years about 100 years ago. You won't find it before then. And the idea was that if we give more and more time, then the changes that are required to get from species to species could happen in smaller steps. The problem is if you run the probability, evolution is actually still impossible. It doesn't matter how much time you give it, it's still impossible. We're talking with Noah about building something, a possible act that it takes just more time because of the effort, the details, the work that has to go into it. To give you guys an idea of just what kind of effort goes into this, I have a video for you that we'll go to next. This is a picture of construction that's actually going on in Kentucky of the Ark Encounter, which is gonna be a full-sized Ark replica. They're actually building it, they're excavating and making all the things, just a small amount of work that these guys are able to go through. Up on the actual ark. That's about half of it. Structure being put in place, outside walls, supposed to open in July. Building today's, using today's building methods, full-size cranes, the ability to build things as tall as we want to and with metal and work that way and still build it out of ark, out of wood, they're looking at two years of construction time. They started in May of 2014, they will finish in July of 2016. And yes, that means if you want to make your summer vacation plans like I do, it gives you a great place to go. It takes them two years using today's timelines. Now, I'm sure they also needed some design time before they started building. There's years of fundraising, figuring out how are we going to afford this, where are we going to get the materials, what do we actually have to do? The process isn't easy. But it is something that God allows us to go through. I think of it as another uh, impossible situation my wife and I found us in. We, we, built, we bought a house in, in Arinda, and uh, somebody had given us a great deal on this house. We knew that it had rats in it. They hadn't done a lot of work on it in a long time. It took us six weeks to seal all the outside holes and cut all the foliage back 10 feet so that at least we knew they weren't just walking in and out of the house whenever they wanted to. At that point, we said, okay, it's time to start fixing something. And we had one bathroom that just stank all the time. And we're like, it's okay. We'll just take out this vanity, clean it out. It's probably just the wood. And then we'll put a new vanity in at the end of the weekend, and it'll all be better. Ta-da, right? It sounds great. Well, not only had they nailed this vanity into the wall, which meant we had to completely disintegrate it to get it out, which was fine because we didn't want it anymore, but we finally get it out. And what we find is, you know that the kick space, the bottom four inches underneath your cabinets that are there so your toes fit when you're brushing your teeth? Solid rat nest all the way across. 
we literally took out five gallons of filth and cotton and ins- whatever they could find that they had just packed in there. It was gross. Once we got through that and we could actually walk into the room again without gagging, we said, okay, now it's time to actually explore the wall and figure out, because there was a big hole. And I'm like, well, obviously they're coming in and out here. So I start opening it up. And the next thing that I notice is there's all the piping, as you'd expect, right? Well, when the pipes go through boards in your house, what they do is they drill a hole that's only a little bit bigger than the pipes so that nothing else goes through it. Well, in this house, instead, they had made a hole this big. I don't know about you, but to a rat, that's a freeway. (laughs) And so we knew rats had just been coming in and out of that as fast as they wanted. And I'm like, okay, well, obviously, I'm going to have to open up this wall. I'm going to have to make sure that we clug up in every direction. There's no more big holes. And so I start going further. And I had also noticed there's no insulation, which for most of you, an interior wall, that's not that strange. I like to insulate my houses really well. And keeps the kids quieter. And then, so we're going around, and I start going behind and up to the front of the house, and I hit an outside wall. And there's still no insulation. I'm going, uh uh-oh. I I at least like to be insulated from the outside of the world. And so I started going up the wall, and I hit the ceiling and there's still no insulation. And what we realized is we had a completely uninsulated house. About two-thirds of the attic space had actually been insulated at one time. The rats had been living in that constantly, so it was all just covered in rat manure and everything else. And they had pulled all the materials into the walls and made little nests and other things where many of them had died. And so as we went through, the process on this house was going through room by room, ripping out every single piece of wall, every nest, every body, everything that was left in there, and then rebuilding from the ground up. It was a process. If God had told me when I walked in the door that I was going to need to rebuild all of it at once, I probably would have fainted right there. But because it was time, because I had the ability to go through it, I got the whole thing done and could rebuild the entire thing. So not only does God give us a plan when he asks us to do something impossible, he helps us to remember that it's a process. And finally, he tells us that the point is, is to preach by our lives. In Hebrews eleven seven, Noah comes back in. And yeah, this is a lot later than where we're at right now. But Noah comes back in in the hall of faith, which is this wonderful um, set of verses where, where Paul teaches us all the different things that all the different people And what they've done as far as following God. It says this. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his whole family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And you might be saying, what do you mean he condemned the world? the things we do and the way we believe God and the way we believe he acts in our lives, they point out to other people who God is and who we think that he is and what we trust him to do. You see, it's not just our words that preach to our friends and the people around us. It's not just years of learning that helped Noah. It's not just the years of struggle and expense and work that he went through. It was the fact that God took him and led him through all of that. And the whole time, he kept going through it. Years of ridicule would have been standard. What, what are you doing, Noah? 
What are you up to? And it's important to remember that when we live differently, people notice. Pastor, Derry, Pastor Terry said it as pound the deckin when we were talking about this. And I have to think, here's Noah. He's building a 45-foot-tall structure in the middle of the land. Anybody who sees it is going to know that that's what he's doing. But even more, every time he hits a nail, every time he pounds on the decking, it declares that something is coming. Every time he says, I need something, or he goes to get more, or he fells a tree, people for miles and miles around would have known what was going on. And literally, what he would have been preaching is, disaster is coming, but there's a way to be safe. God isn't doing this because he's mean. He's doing it because it hurts so bad to watch what we're doing to one another. And that's why he's made a safe way to get out of it. He's given us all a chance. The sad part is that no matter how much he preaches by his life, no matter how much faith he shows, no matter how far the pounding reaches, nobody listens. But that's not what God asked him to do. He didn't say make everybody come. He said build an ark. Noah takes something that sounds impossible, takes the plan, goes through the whole process, and shows who God is by the fact that he does it. You can do the impossible if God tells you to. If it was build an ark, he'd give you the option to do it. People in this day currently are. Matthew 17 puts it this way. Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it will move. A lot of people go, Jesus is just being silly here. He's talking metaphorically about our emotions. And while it's true, some of the biggest mountains he moves are inside of us. Jesus is saying, if you believe what I tell you, we will do wonderful things. You can do the impossible. It sounds crazy, but isn't that exactly what Noah was asked to do? Isn't that exactly what he's showing us? And the question we have to ask is, what impossible task is, Noah, is God asking you to do? What impossible thing has God placed in front of you? And are you following the plan he's given? Are you remembering that even if you want it to be done, it takes a process to go through so many of those things? They're not done when we're ready. They're done when they're done. And are you preaching by your life as you go through it? Noah is an example to us to build what no one believes or understands, to persevere when it seems impossible, and to be willing to show that God is at work in your life and in the world around you every single day. Save me from the sound and selfish ways. I will sing, I will sing to you today. <laughs>